It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello, my name is Daniil Hartman, and I am the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Wednesday, May 12, 2021, 7 o'clock in the evening here in Jerusalem, sitting next to and open television so that we can follow the reports. And this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. We postponed our scheduled podcast, which attempted to engage with the dilemma and issues around Sheikh Jarrah. Instead, we have decided to be with you and talk about the crisis in Israel and its meaning. As always, Today, I'll be joined by Yossi Klein-Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and then by Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America. Let's begin. We're on a roller coaster here in Israel. It's hard to know where to begin. With one of the worst missile attacks on our cities ever experienced by the state of Israel, with a heartbreaking and seemingly hopeless conflict with Gaza going for one more round, without any clear strategic or political goals. With the riots of Arab Israelis, the burning of synagogues, the seeming end of the hope of coexistence between Arab citizens and Jewish citizens. Most Israeli Jews would agree that we are fully justified in defending ourselves against Hamas, an organization committed to our destruction. We are right to angrily reject any attempt to tie the missile attack with events in Jerusalem and thus justify Hamas's aggression. But is that the whole story? Are we really right in ourselves? Even while we affirm that Israel didn't provoke Hamas, that Hamas needs no justification to attack us, that it has its own internal political reasons for starting this round of fighting, even if we grant all of that still, who are we? Do we have any share of responsibility in creating this latest tragedy? And no less important, what is our vision for the day after the fighting ends? There's a complicated feeling among many Israelis that the country's at a crossroads. Are we a country that is number one in the world in vaccinations or a country where a stampede kills 45 people at a holy site that the authorities knew was a disaster waiting to happen? Are we a country where Jewish and Arab politicians negotiate about forming for the first time a new government together? Or are we a country torn apart by ethnic hatred? Are we a country of fairness and equality? Or a country that allows the far right to set the national agenda? These are urgent questions, all reverberating in our minds and in our hearts as we await the next missile attack. You'll see, before we get to what we're thinking, what are you feeling? (sighs) I'm feeling the emotional equivalent of entering an an air raid shelter. That's a very useful metaphor for, I I think, the emotional state of Israel generally. 
we are well practiced in this moment. You know, how many, how many times, Daniil, have we, have we gone through this? Uh, going back to the first Gulf War, when we spent six weeks in and out of a sealed room, waiting for, for the sirens. I, I, I had two little kids then. I raised them in gas masks. And so there's, there's a, an element of familiarity, but also emotional familiarity, which is that, okay, this is a moment where all other considerations are frozen. I'm going to deal with the emergency as it is. And we compartmentalize. We compartmentalize our emotions, our thoughts. And so you and I were having these passionate conversations just the other day about Sheikh Jarrah. Today, that seems to me a um, hundred years ago. That's so. How about you, Daniel? What are you feeling? I, I feel, I feel crazy in a certain, maybe because it's a crazy reality. You know, each time you look at where the missiles fall and you call your children, you call, you know, my mother can't get to a safety zone. She can't. She's stuck. We don't think about those situations. They can't. And by the way, neither could her Philippine caregivers. They're stuck with her. Um, they're going to be with her. And we already know that a caregiver from India was killed because she stayed. So I'm there. I'm, I'm worried about, you know, I have a daughter in Yafo who was stuck in a shelter in the supermarket for two hours with the rice <laughs> and the oil because they weren't allowed out. And then her house is two minutes away. And it took her over a half hour to get there because the roads were blocked with burning um, garbage cans. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling, I'm also feeling angry. And I'm feeling frustrated. Maybe the anger I'll come to later, but I'm also feeling frustrated. Because we are completely at the whim of a terrorist organization which could decide for its own interests to terrorize a whole country. We know that, forget all, there was a brilliant use of Hamas, and we'll get to this, of this moment. You know, we have a clever, clever enemy. But we know that they manipulated this moment to lay claim to a leadership of the Palestinian people that they couldn't achieve in an election because the election was canceled one more time. So it's in their interests and we're back again. And we're back again listening to, frankly, what I find, I don't want to call it stupid because I don't want to be insulting, but let's call it futile or meaningless posturing as if somehow we have a solution. I'm frustrated because the reality is that as powerful as we are, we, I'm not worried about the survival of Israel, but I know that that survival is going to, that if somebody wants to, we are constantly exposed to danger. And when they want to, they could fire and, we have the Iron Dome, but 10% are going to land. And so um, I, I'm feeling very ambivalent. But part of the reality in Israel is that we're, 
we're always, you know, as we've said beforehand, we're all in various levels of PTSD here, but we are forced to bifurcate in these crazy, you know, crazy conversations that we have. And I feel that one of the things I want to do today, you'll see, is I, I want to give voice to what we're feeling, but I also want to push us. Because in the midst of these feelings, we could shut down. And it's perfectly normal. Right now, we're emotionally, I don't know if exhausted. It's not exhausted because we're stronger than that. But we're emotionally engaged. And I want to ask us to see if we could think in a meta way at all about this. If there's any meta conversation that we could add. And we have to talk about Gaza. We also have to talk about Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs. We have to talk about Israel and Hamas. We have to talk about Israel and and the Palestinian Authority. And then we have to talk about within Israel, between Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs, because some very bad things have happened. But let's do that at the second part. Is there, you know, I I don't want to be um, self, what's the term? Self-flagellation. I don't like that. But still, not in the sense of flagellation, but in the sense of uplifting. We're a people which always challenges ourselves to learn from things. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Judaism has never became a popular religion. We exhaust you all the time. <laughs> like, no, oh, what's the meaning? Think about it. You know, and part of me says, you know, bleep it right now. I don't want to think. But I do. Part of what's happening is, it's, you know, we're not shocked. It's, it's happened so many times. Yes, we can't say we were surprised. The army wanted to go in, do respond two weeks ago. It's been going on. So we're not shocked. But is there anything that you feel that you want to learn from this moment, that you want to take away, that you want to take away for yourselves or share with our audience? The truth is, Daniil, this is a very hard invitation for me to take up. And it's hard because <laughs> we're in the throes of, of serious danger. And <laughs> what you're asking for is right, but I, I don't know emotionally if I'm able to do it. Or at least if I'm, not, if I'm able to do it to the level where I would feel, yes, I'm being morally serious, rigorous, you know, I, I I have a very bad habit lately. I've been I've been reading Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Oh, why are you doing that? It's there. There actually are some very very useful windows into uh, into the the subconscious of the of the human sewer. But what comes through in my Twitter feed these days is an avalanche of hatred of almost joyful hatred. We finally got you. Here you are, the chosen people. I get that a lot on my Twitter feed. Look at the chosen people. And celebrating the imminent destruction of Israel. And so, you know, having looked, Daniil, you know, my, my background in a Holocaust survivor family gets triggered by exactly these moments. Now, what complicates it for me is that we're not only at war right now with Hamas, and I have no ambivalence about this war. 
And I, I don't hear ambivalence from you either about the need to fight Hamas. Am I reading you correctly? Uh, Yossi, I love you because I think part of your question is to try to protect me. <laughs> no, but I mean it. I mean it. I, I know you mean it. I love you because you want to make sure that I'm not misunderstood. And I, I, and I really appreciate it. I have no ambivalence. The only ambivalence I have is my recognition is that our leadership has been lying to Israelis for too long, as if there is a solution and we're going to do it and they're going to get a price and they will never. And the, the only ambivalence I have is I know there's something we have to do. And there's no people right now on television. There's sirens. It's 724 and sirens are going off in Tel Aviv. I have no ambivalence. This is evil. And they manipulated it. I know this. They've been planning it. We're dealing with a group of people for whom victory is not measured by any strategic benefit they attain for their people, but by whether they could get enough blood of Jews. So frankly, I'm like you. I have no ambivalence. The only ambivalence I have is that I know is that, okay, so we're going to bomb. And our tragedy is that we're stuck. We don't get to pick some of our neighbors and we're stuck with people who want us dead. And this is going to happen over and again. So that's my only ambivalence. I really hope we don't send in soldiers because then it's your children, my children. I don't want my kids dying in Gaza, I got to tell you. Yeah. Well, you and I had sons in war in Gaza. And it was a nightmare, just a nightmare. It's like you talk about that, you know, that's just not do the best you can from air because I know, you know, we're not going to destroy Hamas. We're not going to be able to wipe out all. It's just not going to happen. And so we have to hurt them, maybe try to create some balance of fear. I don't know if that's the word, but that's the best. So if I have any ambivalence, it's about that. But it's not about the core I have other ambivalences, but, but that, thank you for asking me the question. You know, for me, the way that I would put it is I have likewise no ambivalence about the need to fight this war. I also don't have ambivalence about the fact that this is one more round in a seemingly endless war. Look, I was actively, publicly, passionately in favor of the withdrawal from Gaza. And what I said at the time when I would write about it is, of course, they're going to send rockets against us. We'll go in, we'll deal with it, and we'll come out. And every few years, we'll have to go in. And it's better than being permanent occupiers of 2 million Gazans. And so in that sense, this is, I have no ambivalence. But you know, you will be happy to know that I do have some ambivalence. <laughs> not, about, <laughs> not about this. Not about this. In our conflict with Gaza, I believe deeply that we are right. But my ambivalence is that we are not right in ourselves. And this is the first time that I feel we're at war. Well, maybe not the first time. I felt it in Lebanon in 1982. I know you did too. Maybe the first time since Lebanon where I feel the country is at war and we're not right in ourselves from a prime minister who's on trial for corruption and who many of us feel has no moral authority to lead us into war, to what's going on in the streets with Arab Israelis, the unraveling of coexistence, on so many levels to what happened in Jerusalem these last few weeks. Uh, 
we're not right. The rise of Kahanism, the return of Kahanism to the Knesset. It's just, it's not right. How do you feel, though, if someone says they want to talk to you now about Sheikh Jarrah? How about, how do you feel about somebody? Because I think, you know, none of my Twitter feeds are filled with what you are experiencing. It might be due to the fact that I've never been on Twitter. That might have something to do with it. But part of it, part of the criticism is that we're going into this war with a perception of, of, of moral flaw. That Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah, the Temple Mount, that Israel is entering this war at a moment when it abused its power. How do you feel when somebody wants to talk to you about it? I'm not asking you to talk about that, but when someone wants to talk about that. It depends who it is, honestly. If it's a Muslim, somebody from the program that we run here at the Institute, the Muslim Leadership Initiative, fair. I would feel the same way. You feel deep solidarity and pain with your Palestinian sisters and brothers. I'm ready to have that conversation. But honestly, with fellow Jews, I'm not there. Not not while the missiles are falling. Put it on a shelf. We'll talk about Sheikh Jarrah the morning after. I was ready to talk about it the morning before. Not while we are under this kind of murderous assault from the kind of enemy that's that we're facing. Uh, no, I'm not. You see, here I'm a little different than you. No, I'm not. I'm not there, Daniel. I'm a little different. I'm not interested in debating Sheikh Jarrah right now. That I'm with you. I'm just not interested in debating that issue. But I do believe that one of the things we have to learn right now is that we allowed a murderous terrorist organization to have the perfect hand. We gave it to them. I think there is a There's an arrogance taking hold, and maybe it's part of the vacuum of leadership that we've been having. There's an arrogance of power that we could do anything we want to do. And I feel that the last couple of weeks, when I heard the head of the police talking about whether we should allow the Muslims to sit on the steps near Damascus Gate, and over and again, there was just this confluence of missteps. So I don't want to debate with anybody now, Sheikh Jarrah. But I want to tell you, I'm sitting here in the midst of this war, not feeling that I started it, but I'm tired of our mediocrity. I'm tired of moral mediocrity, which leads to stupidity. And it's just, we are better that you ask us the word. When you say we're not right with ourselves, part of what we're not right with is, it's just, we're losing it. We are simply losing it. And it weakens us. It has nothing to do with Hamas. But when you enter a war, when you yourself aren't who you ought to be, that's not the Israel that we're supposed to. That's, you know, we have a great army, but what about the foundation? We've allowed ourselves to be completely outmaneuvered. By whom? By a murderous terrorist. We, startup, moral nation, chosen, all the above. I'm aggravated. We have to make sure. I remember when I went to war. And initially, I thought it was a just war. And then in the middle, I discovered that it wasn't. But I remember when I went to war, I knew the moral righteousness. I knew what I was doing. 
the war started out, the Lebanon war, it started out as a moral war. Absolutely. It started that way. I didn't know that I was going to be part of Ariel Sharon's private war with the Syrians. But our strength comes from engaging in war when our moral position is different. And I think this time for a whole spectrum of reasons, I think we have allowed ourselves to put aside questions about who we are supposed to be morally. We're just not talking. It's, you know, the Palestinians, we offered, they said no. And moral discourse, it's just, we don't talk about it. And when you go to war in that context, I don't think it's good for us. I'm angry. Daniel, what you've just done is model in a very beautiful way what I was saying earlier about compartmentalization, but on a higher turn of the spiral. Because what I realize listening to you is that what I really meant was not so much compartmentalization, which is simultaneously holding different ideas and emotions, but really putting on a shelf everything that doesn't have to do directly with fighting and winning this battle. And what you're modeling is saying no. I'm with you, Yossi, completely. Of course, we have to fight this war. I have no ambivalence about that. But at the same time, I'm not going to deny, and I'm not going to deny myself, the feelings of deep ambivalence, unease, even shame in other areas. And I don't know, Daniil, if I'm capable of doing that emotionally at this moment, but I really respect that. And I respect it. For me, it's a model. I wish that some of our Jewish critics could hear that. Because what you're really modeling is this way of being fully engaged with Israel, with the Jewish people, with our commitments to each other, without lobotomizing ourselves, without denying our critiques, our unease. You're creating space within a conversation of basic solidarity to nevertheless allow this unease that so many Jews are feeling at this moment to be expressed. Thank you. Let's take this unease a little further. Do we have to? Can't we just kind of leave it here? We have to. Before I invite Ilana in, I want to go for one more feature, because in many ways for Israelis, we're used to, you know, okay, it's one more round. So this is harder. It's one more round. But there's some things happening inside the mixed cities of Jews and Arabs that we've never seen before. You know, they're using word, you know, pogroms, whatever the word, forget the words, doesn't matter. But there's mob attacks against Jews, synagogues, homes. Police aren't there. Let's not do an analysis of, of Israel's police force. And then there is a alignment. One of the great tragedies is that through our stupidity, I believe, we have positioned Hamas as the leader of of a whole group of Israeli Arabs, not all of them, but a whole group, especially those connected with the Northern Islamic Brotherhood. But is that association, is this really the end? Is there something we could have done differently? What's your take on here? Instead of, I understand with with Gaza, you can't bifurcate, but now there's two fronts here, Yossi. So there has to be two fronts in your soul too. What's your read there? Yes, yes, there are. And 
Look, this issue, the issue of the future relationship between Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis, is my main civic commitment as an Israeli. This is where I've invested my work, my, my vision. A good part of my soul is invested in Lourdes and Ramla and these mixed cities. So I haven't even been, truthfully, I haven't begun to emotionally process what, what happened yesterday. It's so devastating uh, to think that less than a week ago, we were on the verge of forming a joint Jewish-Arab government, the first time in the country's history. And then last night, to see three synagogues being burned by Arab rioters in Lod. The dichotomy is, is so vast but the truth is that both of those, those scenarios are an accurate reflection of this moment. And if you're asking what should we be doing differently, what should we have been doing differently all this time? Look, the Arab-Israeli community in the last few years has been crying out to the Jewish majority, help us deal with the growing murderous crime in our villages and towns. Send more police. You know, it's the exact opposite of what we're hearing with Black Lives Matter. You know, Black Lives Matter, defund the police. Arab Israelis are telling us, send us more police. And we've acted as if they live in a part of Israel that's extraterritorial. We're not really responsible for them. And if that kind of crime rate would have been happening in the Jewish sector, you can be sure there would be emergency budgets and augmented police presence. So that's also symbolic of the neglect. We fail. We don't consider them part of ourselves. And I'm not just, I will not go anywhere near justifying the kind of violence we saw yesterday. Ruby Rivlin, our president, who is a genuine liberal, spoke in a language about the pogroms in Lod and Ramla last night, spoke about the Arab rioters in a language that I've never heard from him before. People are angry. Jews are angry, justifiably. This is, this, you know, one of the reasons we have the state of Israel is because this is the one country in the world where, where we thought we knew that synagogues aren't burned. Something went wrong. So something was, was disrupted. I want to try to add one comment and then turn to Ilana. And I want to offer our audience a distinction that's dangerous, but I want to throw off of a point you said, because I'm not justifying, and it's not saying I'm not justifying, but so I'm not doing, I'm not this, but I'm really not justifying. I'm really not justifying. The notion that in Israel, a Jew should be afraid of their Jewishness is just, sorry, we don't do that anymore. That we don't do. That I'm not accepting. But I think it's really important for us not to put these rioters in the same camp as Hamas. By saying not to do so, I'm not saying I justify them. But there is a confluence of events that have come together. And we've allowed, and if we continue to do so, we will continue to give Hamas a victory that they do not deserve. There is a deep-seated anger and frustration amongst Israeli Arabs. And a lot of the events that took place in Jerusalem, while not 
having anything to do with why Hamas started to fire, they have what to do with Arab frustration and anger. But Daniel, why can't we say, and we know this is true, that there is a minority within the Arab-Israeli community that is that actually is Hamas. But we can, but I don't think... And so burning a synagogue, I don't care if a Hamas missile falls on a synagogue. No, see, here I don't agree. You see, here I don't agree. Part of you know and I know, something happens to mobs. Something happens. And I don't believe that these Israeli Arabs, I think there was something, another story going on. I'm not saying that it was the justification. There is no justification for this type of mob violence. But it is not as if this group is saying, I am aligning with Hamas. It is, besides not being smart, I don't think it reflects the story that these Israeli Arabs are telling themselves. And I've heard over and again over the last 24, 48 hours. I'm not talking about the chance. I'm not talking about the public mob violence. I'm talking about their narrative about what's happening is growing out of a different experience. And I want us to hear it. And maybe part of what I want us to learn at this moment, and maybe this is part of what's given Hamas its great victory, is that we're convinced that since we're the militarily powerful ones, we also control the narrative. There are multiple narratives, and we have to learn how to listen to other stories so that we could learn how to move back and forth at these really, really complicated times. But now, Yos, let's stop a little bit. And when we return, we're going to get to hear from our colleague 6,000 miles away. A big part of I Engage is that Israel belongs to the Jewish people. And what Ilana is feeling is something that I, as an Israeli, want to hear. And so let's take a break and we'll be back in a minute. Ilana, hi. I know your role usually is to share with us the wisdom of the sages, but now I want your wisdom. It's hard for you in a different way, but what are you feeling right now and where are you? Look, I, first of all, it's interesting to even hear you say, Danielle, our iEngage project, it's transatlantic. And so what Ilana is feeling right now matters to me because in a way, sitting here in America, it's so easy to become one of these armchair, you know, this is why it happens and this is what should be done. And, and my whole approach, my whole perspective is I want to know what you're thinking. Meaning I check in, I'm constantly checking in with my siblings in Israel, with my nieces and nephews in Israel, with my cousins in Israel, with my friends in Israel to see how people are doing, to see how people are feeling And I think that to me is, that's the first response. Meaning my first response is in the, you know, in the argument over the morality of having certain higher obligations or higher ethical obligations to your own family. 
And there's big philosophical debates as to is that moral? Is that immoral? Would it be immoral to care about everybody the same? I'm staunchly on the side of this is my family. I mean, I would say the Jewish people and the state of Israel more broadly, this is my family. And my first response is, are you okay? And then you start asking questions about, can you have empathy, right? Meaning there's mothers in Gaza who don't have shelters for their children. Of course you can have empathy. Do you think about the political issues that I'm not going to say led to this point, meaning like you said, Hamas, Hamas wasn't like, oh, look what's going on on the Temple Mount. This is why I'm suddenly going to have several hundred rockets at my disposal, right? I mean, it's it's not even 67, it's 1948, meaning we're not talking about something that's precipitated by what it is that Israel does. So you have a separate moral conversation and a separate moral question of, What is it that Israel needs to do and how does Israel need to do it? But to me, these are three different registers. And my first register is always, are you okay to my family? And I think that's an important moral stance. And I think it is a very contested moral stance among American Jews. How do you feel, Ivana? Because you have a different front line than we are. One of your front lines is you're still in the midst of more people who want to have a conversation about Sheikh Jarrah. Here, like we're not talking about it anymore, but you're there. I know. Or more people because of that can't have or have decided not to have empathy with Israel. It's as if we're the family member who you've broken with. You know, I appreciate the position that you made. How do you feel with that position in the midst of the environment that you're in right now? Look, I respect there are people on the liberal American Jewish landscape, who I respect enormously because they show themselves to be people who hold all three registers at once. And that to me is fantastic. Meaning you're having a discussion, Yossi, you're saying, I want to put it on the shelf and I don't want to talk about maybe even those other two registers or maybe just the third one about you know, what does Israel need to think about in terms of its own morality and actions? And Danielle, you're saying we have to talk about all three at the same time. I think it's valuable to have people who can talk about all three at the same time in the American Jewish landscape without succumbing to ignoring the pain of Israelis and Jews on the one hand, or ignoring the moral failings, or ignoring the pain of Palestinian civilians. That's the kind of leadership, I think, that may differ from the general Israeli public versus the general American Jewish public. That for the American Jewish public, and I'm not talking about the Orthodox scene or the more hawkish scene in America, I'm talking about liberal American Jews, I'm talking about the people who are coming to Hartman, right? To be able to hold all three of those together And to be honest about how sometimes it can feel callous if you push too hard on one and ignore the other. And sometimes you're actually cutting off your nose to spite your face if you push on one too much versus the other. That to me, it's how do you strike that balance? And as an educator who works in and lives in both of these groups of American Jews, I'm very aware of knowing who you're speaking to and what the conversation is about. Because 
the idea of saying, well, you don't have solidarity, you don't have loyalty, you don't care when people are saying to you, no, I do have solidarity, I do have loyalty, and I care. And one of the ways that I care is I want to talk about the moral issues. My job is to always argue, okay, but what else is involved in the solidarity and in the loyalty and in the caring? Is there more than just the critique? And for the people who are just knee-jerk, you know, I don't want you to ever talk to me about Sheikh Jarrah, not when there are 600 missiles flying and not when there aren't. Then I feel it's my job to essentially say, well, if you really care about the future of this country and you really care about the character of this country, you've got to support the people on the ground who are trying to do the coexistence work, right? So to me, it's sort of like, it's not Israel writ large and it's not just my family. It's seeking out those people in Israel, in America, who are actually trying to do the work of both, which I think is coexistence work. Like that's what coexistence work people are doing. They're saying we recognize both sides. We come from a particular situatedness. And from that situatedness, we're going to take a responsibility and use our agency. So that's where I'm sitting with all that. That's where you're sitting. I don't know if it's coexistence between peoples, but it's coexistence between the complexities of the feelings that we have at any given moment. And that as long as they coexist, you're okay. When they don't, what happens? You're lonely or you just leave the room? Well, I have more agency than that. Meaning when they don't coexist, depending on, depending on who I'm with, you can bring things up. But there are moments, you know, I, I'm not here to bring the Torah, but this is how I think, right? Birkevo tells us, like, don't try to calm somebody down when they're angry, right? What are they saying? They're, they're, there are times when you say things, there are times when you don't. And that's not just about whatever ideology you're coming in with. It's also about empathy for the person you're talking to. So there's the relational and there's the philosophical. And they've got to be married, right? Yossi and I are not going to start talking about Sheikh Jarrah right now. But if somebody started talking to me about Sheikh Jarrah, I would say, yeah, and... I just want you to see these texts that I'm getting from my family that, you know, they're sleeping in their round shelter, in their mamad. You know what I'm saying? But I have more agency than that. I think as a Jewish educator, we have to have more agency than that. And we have to have respect for where people are coming from, even when we disagree with it, which I think is very, very difficult. Because you just want to say, no, follow my way. And I've seen people do this on Facebook, like, you have to do that. Really? Human beings education, dialogue, discussion. And in America, we're not going to solve this problem right now, right? But we do need to figure out how we talk about it as a community. Yossi, I think I'm hearing a siren here in Jerusalem. Do you hear it? You're hearing an ambulance in New York City, probably to your great relief. (laughs) I'm glad we timed that well. Well... I'm saying, whoever is in that ambulance in New York City, may they be well and healthy. Amen. Um, Amen. Yossi, depending on what you say, I'd like to give you the last word. (laughs) I so much appreciate these conversations with both of you. I feel that my own tendency and the tendency of so many of us is to go into the the air raid shelter, as I said at the beginning, and and to shut down. And if we're going to really envision the kind of Israel that we want, as Lana, as you just put it, 
then we can't allow even states of emergency to shut us down completely. Now we need to be, we need to be smart. We need to be, to be self-protective. But what I'm taking out of this conversation from both of you is we need to be self-protective, both of our physical well-being and also of our souls. And so thank you. Thank you both for what for me has really been a, a bit of oxygen, you know, stepping out of the sealed room and breathing a little bit. Thank you, Yossi. Thank you, Lana. You know, as we're talking now, a six-year-old is in critical condition from a, a missile that directly hit their house in Shderot. May tonight, tomorrow, the day after, be a day with as limited loss of life as possible. But unfortunately, as we said beforehand, we don't get to control that. We get to manage it maybe from time to time. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Kelman and edited by Alex Dillon, and music is provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Yossi, Lana, be well, be safe, and it's, as always, wonderful to be with you. Laila Tov. Thank you.